My eyes fluttered open as a shiver ran down my body. I laid in bed for a moment. As I remembered, I was not at home, but in a bed and breakfast suite called the William Winter Room at the Myrtles Plantation. The staff had shown me nothing short of Southern hospitality. Yet, in that moment, I felt like an unwelcome visitor. A strange sensation came over me. I sat up in bed and surveyed the dark room. A gust of wind swept through the open window. It was freezing, even though it was a humid summer night in Louisiana. I walked to the window. Before I shut it, I peered outside. The live oak trees rustled, and the moon cast a majestic glow on the grounds. It was the picture of tranquility, and I felt at ease again. Then I heard a shot. I froze. It pierced the night and rang in my ears. There was no screaming, no voices, no sound. But someone was hurt downstairs and they needed help. I was sure of it. I slowly opened my bedroom door and crept down the hallway. Help me, help me, a man said. My blood turned cold as I debated whether I should go downstairs. Please help me, anyone, he pleaded. I descended the stairs, my adrenaline through the roof. I surveyed the entrance hall. There was no one in sight, no blood, no wounded man, no one. I stood there with sweat dripping down my face and my heart pounding out of my chest. Then I noticed the moonlight pick up something on the floor. Muddy footprints trailed from the door up the staircase where they stopped midway. I followed the footsteps until my eyes fell upon a wall mirror. In it, I saw a man lying on the stairs with a gunshot wound in his chest. He was barely alive, trying desperately to climb the staircase. My head swung around. No one was there. And yet the footsteps kept ringing on the empty stairs as though prepared to do so for eternity. Welcome to Haunted Places. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to one of the most haunted homes in America, the Myrtles Plantation, located in St. Francisville, Louisiana. To this day, it's haunted. If you can't get enough haunted places, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on your favorite podcast directory, as well as on Facebook and Instagram, at Parcast, and on Twitter, at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, we'd really appreciate a five-star review, wherever you're listening. 
people have traveled from all over the country to St. Francisville, Louisiana to visit the Myrtles Plantation. The Antebellum Era Plantation is replete with a rich, albeit complicated history that dates back to the late 18th century. It's now a bed and breakfast that attracts visitors in search of ghosts of the antebellum South. General David Bradford, who had a role in the Pennsylvania Whiskey Rebellion, built the plantation in 1796 and named it Laurel Grove. He constructed a beautiful mansion on the 650-acre plot, complete with six dormers and three bays. The interior boasted sleek marble floors and arched mantles of the Rococo revival, a style that epitomized European grandeur and luxury. After Bradford died in 1808, his wife ran the property until she sold it to their son-in-law, Judge Clark Woodruff. Judge Woodruff was not a good man. Though I knew it troubled her, I still chastised Chloe for her behavior. She was putting us all at risk. What would happen if the judge's sweet wife, Sarah, found out? I will always remember the way she looked at me. The steely resolve. Her tense eyes flashing between anger and pain. What choice do I have? I listened outside their door as I cleaned. I heard pain. I judged her. I cursed her for putting us at risk. But she was right. What choice did she have? After all, it was better than being in the fields, in that sweating, delirious sun, day after day, with aching bones and a noxious mind. Then one day, the master called. I entered his chambers, and there sat Chloe. Her face frazzled, her clothes torn, a crude cloth gag shoved in her mouth. But her eyes, her dark eyes were steely and fixed, anger and pain. The judge looked calm in a furious and focused way. He was shirtless, suspenders hanging down to his knees. His hairy chest protruded triumphantly. The large knife in his hand danced across the whetstone with a practiced patience. Your friend, he was saying to me, has let me down. She's decided that the special treatment I give her is worth crying over. His voice was low and rumbling. He looked at me with a cold gaze. You don't want to let me down, do you? I shook my head with short and terse movements. Good. He made me hold the rag under her ear. Not a drop of blood is to touch the floor of my chambers, he commanded. The knife went in with a surprising ease. I dared not look in Chloe's eyes. I filled one rag with blood, then another. Then I held the folds of my white dress against the terrible hole where her ear used to be. I held it there as she screamed. But I did not spill a drop. After all, what choice did I have? Chloe now wore a green turban to cover her wound. 
no one asked her about it. No one asked us anything anymore. Not even about the bloodstains on my dress. She still took care of the children, but now her smiles with them were fake and distant. When I saw her make the cake, I knew something was amiss. I could have stopped her. I could have spilled the bowl or told the judge, but I did not. She met my gaze, as though waiting to see what I would do, challenging me to challenge her. I swallowed and looked away. I watched her serve the cake to the judge's wife, Sarah, and her two daughters. Nothing about Chloe's smile then was fake. Sarah and the children died quickly. They suffered little. To Chloe, they were innocent. It was the living that must suffer. The judge became enraged and unpredictable. I brought him whiskey after whiskey and watched him destroy his property piece by piece. He made me sit and drink with him. My head felt light. He played with the blood stain on my dress, running it between his fingers until he fell asleep in his chair. Then I heard the whispers. They seemed to dance through the hallway. The sound of pain. I dashed through the hallway, but the whispers seemed only to grow louder. You must find us, they said. You must. You must. What choice do you have? Then there was the mirror. Between its luxurious gold trim, the glass was foggy in a translucent way. I had cleaned it that day. I cleaned it every day. How could it be fogged up again? I could hardly see myself. My flat, dark eyes were sucked in by the fog. Children, I whispered. A small hand struck the glass from inside. The arm disappeared somewhere behind the fog. I did not jump or look away as the greasy, desperate fingers streaked down the mirror. After, I still cleaned the mirror every day, but I left the streak of small fingers there. The judge was too drunk to notice the crime, but they were an important reminder to me. The witch had cursed them cursed the poor and innocent children. She must be punished. I told the other slaves. I told them what Chloe had done. I told them that they would be blamed and we would all be punished. They listened and nodded and grew angry. The mob gathered Chloe from her quarters in the night. She did not fight them. Even when they strung the noose around her neck, she did not fight. They held her aloft for just a moment. Rope slung over the tree. Her eyes met mine. There was no more pain. No more anger. Only judgment. What choice did I have? I shouted, crazed and afraid. What choice do we have? They all looked at me. Then, they dropped her. After Chloe died, they tied rocks to her body and threw her in the river. 
I walked out to its bank every day, but her green turban never washed ashore. Legend has it that a slave girl named Chloe sought revenge on Judge Clark Woodruff. After he ended an intimate relationship with her, he cut off her ear. So she murdered Mrs. Woodruff and the children by poisoning their food. Some believe Chloe wanted to kill them, while others hold that she only intended to make the family sick so she could nurse them back to health in order to gain Clark Woodruff's approval again. The story goes that Chloe met her fate at the hands of the other slaves, who were afraid Woodruff would also punish them for her deed. There's no evidence to support any of these theories or that Chloe even existed at all. Historical records indicate that Woodruff's wife and children died from disease, not poisoning. There's also no evidence to support that the Woodruffs even owned a slave named Chloe. Yet, people report seeing a ghost named Chloe haunting the plantation. Chloe's story gained notoriety when the owner of the house took a chilling photo in 1992. Standing in the breezeway between the general store and the butler's pantry is the shadowy, nearly translucent figure of a young girl. Feel free to search for the photo. It will surely make your skin crawl. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. And now, back to the story. After the death of his family, Clark Woodruff let the plantation slowly degrade until 1834, when he sold the house to Ruffin Gray Sterling and his wife, Mary Catherine Cobb. Since they were leaders in the community, they wanted to have a home reflecting their prominent social status. The property underwent an extensive renovation. Fine furnishings were imported from Europe, and the walls of the house were removed and repositioned to create four large rooms, a formal dining room and a game room. The renovation doubled the size of the original Bradford house, and the Sterlings changed the name of the property to the Myrtles, after the crepe myrtles that grew on the grounds. In spite of the grandeur that the plantation exuded, the Sterling's riches couldn't spare them tragedy. Ruffin Sterling died from tuberculosis shortly after the completed renovation, and only four of the nine Sterling children made it to adulthood. As many times death has struck the Myrtles, it's not surprising that there have been accounts of strange phenomena in and around the property, including the ghost of William Winter. Winter was teaching a Sunday school lesson in the gentleman's parlor of the house when a stranger approached the front of the property on horseback and called out for him. Winter told his students to stay put and cautiously walked out onto the porch. An unidentified man instantly shot him, then charged off on his horse. Winters stumbled inside the house and died, trying to climb the stairs. To this day, visitors claim to hear phantom footsteps on the staircase. 
The history of the Myrtles Plantation was steeped in violence. During the Civil War in the early 1860s, it fell prey to Union soldiers. The great deal of money and time the Sterlings invested into renovating the plantation was for naught, as the war wreaked havoc on the property. Many of their most expensive belongings were looted and destroyed by Union soldiers. Post-war, their wealth, now largely in Confederate currency, was deemed worthless. Mary Cobb Sterling had invested in a sugar plantation, but it was destroyed in the war. With the property in shambles, it began to collect debt. The Sterling family eventually had to sell the land in 1886. The Myrtles changed hands until it landed with Harrison Milton William in 1889. In the early 20th century, his heirs split up and sold the land surrounding the house, marking the end of the land's plantation years. Through the 1970s, the house underwent several ownership changes. Over those years, both the owners and visitors have reported strange occurrences around the house. When James and Frances Kermine Myers bought the property, they decided to renovate. There'd been a lot of buzz about the Myrtles Plantation's grand reopening as a bed and breakfast in the 1970s. Probably the person least excited for the reopening was the maid, Julie. Hired for the task of cleaning the entire 22-room mansion, Julie hated this place. The way it breathed luxury. The whole thing was ornate and ostentatious and utterly retching. But she needed this job. She was desperate to get out of that cramped two-bedroom that uncomfortably housed her, her mother, and her mother's rat prick of a boyfriend. She smoked a joint to steal her nerves and got to work. Julie turned on her old antique radio. She mopped to the rhythm of the music, dragging her feet across the smooth marble floor with carefree abandon. Weird. Her radio rarely gave out like this. She hit it a few times with the palm of her hand, to no avail. Come on. She couldn't clean without music, even if she was getting paid a cool $10 an hour. That's odd. James and Francis told her they wouldn't be back until late in the evening. She quickly spritzed the cleaning spray throughout the room to cover up the smell of marijuana. There was something off about the footsteps. Something distant and intimidating. She didn't dare call out. She dropped the mop in fright, and it clattered to the floor. The footsteps suddenly stopped. She stood stock still, listening for any movement. She tiptoed over to the radio and turned it off. Silence. Relieved, Julie removed her shoes and started cleaning. They were back. Whoever it was was walking right toward the room. No shout of greeting. No gesture of friendliness. Julie wasted no time tiptoeing over to the closet. She shut the door 
and peered through its slatted louvers. The thin lines of light offered her a stunted and imperfect view. Julie saw too late that the mop and her shoes were left in the room. She held her breath, hoping for a miracle. Hoping James and Francis returned early. She knew that if they didn't, this could end very badly. A shiny black boot shot through the room's doorway. It hovered for a second, as though unsure of its footing. Then it came down hard on the floor. A second later, the man entered. He wore a navy-colored wool uniform and a forage cap. He had a long beard and held an old musket so it leaned against his shoulder like he was in a military march. But the most unsettling aspect of his appearance was the gaping bullet hole in the back of his head. The man entered the bedroom, head tilted back. He sniffed the air. His vacant eyes passed over the closet and Julie slunk away from her slatted view, though she could tell he didn't see her. He made his way through the room, smelling her mop, smelling the sheets of the bed, smelling the radio. When he got to her shoes, he got on his hands and knees like a type of rabid animal and took several quick, punctuated inhales. His head snapped up with a start. He stared directly at the closet, directly at Julie. He rose, grabbed his musket, and methodically crossed the room to the closet doors. When he was in front of Julie's hiding spot, he slowly reached out his hand. Julie crashed through the closet door, barreling toward the bedroom exit. The man staggered back, and his musket fell to the ground. Julie burst through the bedroom door and took off down the hallway. Her socks struggled to maintain a grip against the marble floor. As she reached the stairs, her momentum was too great to maintain. She tripped over one of the stairs and tumbled down, hitting the landing of the staircase hard. In a daze, she could see the man approach her, with his weapon still against his shoulder. She tried to stand, but both her ankles were already swelling from the fall. The man descended the stairs. Stare after methodical stare. Julie tried to slide away on her back, but it was no use. Her strength seemed to evaporate with her fall. The man reached Julie and stood above her. He stood there for what seemed like a long and arduous moment. Then the bullet wound in his head seemed to open, first with just a trickle. Then it poured out of him, puddling on the floor next to Julie. She screamed and shut her eyes tight, no longer able to take in the gruesome scene. When she opened her eyes again, the man was gone. Later, when the owners and police arrived, a thorough search of the premises resulted in nothing. No one was found, and there was no sign of foul play. 
They attributed the blood on Julie's clothes to a wound she must have received in her fall. But when she inspected her body that night, she didn't have any cuts or scratches. Against her wishes, Julie finished the job over the next few days, since she desperately needed the money. One afternoon, as she was mopping, she came upon a bloodstain on the floor below the staircase, in the shape of a human body. Julie attempted to mop the stain, but no matter how hard she tried, it remained, taunting her, warning her that she was never safe. Legend has it that three Union soldiers were murdered inside the Myrtles' plantation after they broke in and attempted to loot the house. They were shot to death and left behind bloodstains that refused to be cleaned. Some say mops won't touch the bloodstains. Even inanimate objects know that whatever spirit lies in those stains insists on remaining forever. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now, back to our story. Over the years, many unexplained happenings have occurred at Myrtle's plantation. In one of the parlor rooms, a grand piano repeats the same haunting chord until someone enters the room and it stops. There are accounts of unidentified sights and sounds of children around the house. Don't get me wrong, I was happy to get my students out here on a historic piece of land, exploring and learning. After all, this was a trip I was trying to get the school to approve for years. We don't have the budget, it's not the right subject matter for kids to learn. Excuses. Finally, they agreed. And the children's eagerness is testament to my efforts. My students and I enjoyed a nice breakfast at the general store before beginning the tour of the Myrtles. They were more interested in the ghost sightings the plantation had been touted for, but I assured them those were just old wives' tales. Our guide commenced the tour on the grounds. The land was vivaciously green, and the large pond was idyllic. It was strange to see all this beauty amid the plantation's otherwise tumultuous history. We made our way over to the main house, which was bordered by a 125-foot-long veranda with ornamental ironwork detail. The spacious front hall featured crown molding, a French Baccarat crystal chandelier, and a grand staircase. There was no shortage of luxury poured into every detail of this house. The kids were definitely impressed. So was I. The regal interior appeared almost frozen in time. As we passed the staircase, I thought I heard tiny footsteps above me. I looked upward, curious. I did a quick head count of my students. No one was missing. Sir, the tour guide called out. I looked up. Everything okay? He asked. I, I think I heard... I stopped myself, not wanting to sound silly in front of the children. It's just us and the good Lord present, sir. The guide reassured me. I nodded, and they continued walking. 
I glanced up once more and saw the hem of a girl's dress dart past the staircase railing above me. One of my students called my name. Mr. Thompson? I shook off the unnerved feeling and rejoined the group. But as I walked away from the staircase, I could hear a little girl teasingly whisper my name. Mr. Thompson. The hairs on the back of my neck stood up. The voice was scratchy and unnatural and strange. At this point, we made it to the game room, which seemed to especially spark the interest of the children. I stood behind the group, everyone's backs facing me, except the guide who was addressing us. I noticed movement out of the corner of my eye. Slowly, I turned my head toward the glass door. A curly-haired little girl wearing an antebellum dress stood outside, peering into the room. Her eyes, her horrible eyes, they were pupilless and ivory white. She held a small and stubby finger to her lips. I obeyed, horrified what the students might think if I shouted in fright. She vanished. Beads of sweat rolled down my face. The heat must have been getting to me. I tried to remember the last time I drank water and suddenly felt incredibly dehydrated. I hardly focused for the rest of the tour. My mind burned with the image of the ivory girl. The sun was about to set when we finally reached the end of the tour. The students took photos in front of the myrtles. All the while, I kept glancing back at the house. I felt a shiver down my spine. Time to go, kids, I said. As I rushed the students onto the school bus, I noticed that Matthew was missing. He was an explorative child with a big imagination. It's no wonder he wandered off. Curious little bugger. I crept inside. The tour guide was gone, but he hadn't placed any restrictions on re-entering the mansion. I heard a patter of soft footsteps down the hall and followed them. The empty interior was massive and chamber-like. Every noise echoed. Mr. Thompson. I stopped, straining to hear the soft voice. Matthew? I called through the cavern. He's this way, Mr. Thompson, this way, but you have to hurry. I didn't know which way the voice came from. It seemed to be everywhere. I saw the mirror and stopped. It swirled with a translucent gray fog. In it, I could see the figure of a boy, a boy that did not belong, a boy desperate to get out. His face was covered with a mixture of mud and sweat and blood. His eyes were shut tight, and his mouth opened in a scream, but no sound came out. I was suddenly aware of the cold and thick silence around me. I approached the mirror and confirmed what I already knew. The boy was Matthew. His curiosity 
had taken him too far. I approached the bus, confused and disoriented, unaware of how to tell the parents that I lost their son, knowing that they would never believe the truth. But when I got to the bus and looked down the rows of seats, I noticed they were all full. I called Matthew's name. No one responded. The students looked at me quizzically. I searched through the roll call sheets, tore them apart, really. I examined each check mark next to each student that assured me everyone was on the bus. No one was missing. Matthew's name was not there. One of the famous paranormal features of the Myrtles Plantation is an ornate hallway mirror. Visitors claim to have seen handprints, watermarks, and even figures in old-fashioned clothing lurking inside the glass. The figures are said to be Sarah Woodruff, the wife of Clark Woodruff, and their two children, who allegedly died from poisoning at the hands of the famous slave girl, Chloe. One of these children is believed to be the ghost girl of the Myrtles Plantation. She's known to run about the house giggling and haunting unsuspecting children and adults. There is in fact a photo of a young antebellum girl standing in the window behind a teacher posing with students on the courtyard. To this day, the girl remains unidentified, but she has made her presence unabashedly known on the premises. Despite the many rumors of ghost activity throughout the house, the Myrtles Plantation has become a vacation spot for many visitors every year, whether it is to unwind or catch a glimpse of a ghost or two. There are said to be as many as 12 ghosts at the Myrtles Plantation, whether it's Chloe, the vengeful slave, the invading soldiers, or the photogenic ghost girl. There is surely something waiting for you on your visit to the historic mansion. Take a tour, visit the gift shop, enjoy the architectural marvel, gorge yourself on wonderful Southern cuisine, but don't linger on the staircase and don't look too long in the hallway mirror. That's where the ghosts of the Myrtles Plantation's violent past live. And they think it's rude to stare. Thanks for listening to Haunted Places. Don't forget to subscribe to Haunted Places on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. A new episode comes out every Thursday. We'll see you next time. Haunted Places was created by Max Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. 
It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Ron Shapiro. With production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Haunted Places is written by Mellory Velasquez. I'm Greg Polson. Mm-hmm.